Well, good morning, everybody. It's good to see you this morning. Thank you for being here, whether you're joining us live or whether you're joining us online. We're glad that you're here this morning. Um, we're going to go ahead and get started this morning because we've got a lot to cover and not much time to do it. Uh, and I don't mean just today, but can you believe that we are we are at the second to last week of our our uh, pastor's Bible study for the year. I, it's hard for me to believe. I mean, here we, here we are at uh, here we are at the end of Revelation, at the end of the pastor's Bible study. It's starting to feel like end times in one way or another. So so we're glad that you're here this morning. I mean, my microphone's not on. He had this great habit of of uh, whenever he sang that hymn, whenever you, whenever he would sing "Victory in Jesus," he would just throw that fist up in the air, just "Victory in Jesus," and it was just always so much, uh, just so inspiring. Well, today, I, I mean, can, can you believe it? This is our second to last session. Believe it or not, we are coming to the end of Revelation. It's hard to think about the end of the end things and the end of a session, and it has been wonderful. I, I want to thank you all for enduring all of the weird changes and hoops and regulations and all that kind of stuff through this entire COVID season. We've gone all the way from, from fall, all the way from the beginning of of John's revelation. I really do want to thank you for this. Of course, we're meeting again next week for, for our grand finale, of course, unless Jesus comes. Uh, and so, but, but we'll be ready for that. Uh, but, but today we've got a few more challenging things. You know, things are, things are coming to that final climax in Revelation, and we've got some, some really interesting things to talk about today. Um, first of all, let me just, I want to I frame this, I want to set this up because, uh, because some of the things that we're going to say today can be challenging. And so I want to frame it like this. Well, first of all, before we get into that, uh, yesterday was St. Patrick's Day. How many of you all believe in leprechauns? Anybody here believe in leprechauns? How about, and this is not going to be broadcast to your children or grandchildren, how many of you all believe in the Easter Bunny? How many of you all believe in Santa Claus? I mean, okay, one, good. Thank you for your honesty. Yeah, there's benefit to, to believing in Santa Claus. And how I many of you believe in the tooth fairy still? Okay. There, again, there is an economic impact to believing in the, in the tooth fairy, I believe. Um, so none of you believe in those things. Let me ask you this. How many of you all believe that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior? Good, good. How many of you believe? All right. Let me just, uh, the reason I ask you that question and I didn't ask you how many, of you how many of you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. If you've not noticed, from, not only from Revelation, but from the rest of Scripture, it's not just about our acceptance, it's about the fact that He, you know, he is who He is. And our, when we believe that, that's when we accept it. Um, but the reason I ask that question is that, is that we, if, we, you know, if we believe that Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior, the, then what I want to tell you is that the things that we're about to talk about are not bad news, they are good news. Let me say that again. If you believe that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, then the things that we are about to talk about in chapter 19 of the book of Revelation are not bad news, rather they are good news and the, possibly the best news that we could ever hear. Not, oh, I, why did I say possibly? That was ridiculous. Definitely the best news that we could ever hear. 
We started talking a couple of weeks ago about the fourth theme of, of Revelation, which is the salvation of the saints and the punishment of the unredeemed. And then last week we started talking about the sort of the preliminary return of Jesus Christ. As Jesus Christ comes to earth, we call that event the parousia. A lot of people think that the word apocalypse means the second coming of Christ or the ending of the world. But actually the word that means the coming of Christ is the parousia. And so that's what we talked about last week. And we talked about the marriage feast of the Lamb. We talked about, even though it's not specified or talked about in Revelation, we talked about the rapture, which is one of those very controversial and, and differently, I'm not going to say misunderstood, but differently understood concepts relating to the last times and end things and things like that. And of course, you know, many of you have studied Revelation in the past, probably from a dispensational point of view. We've been talking about Revelation from the covenant point of view, from the reformed point of view. And so I just want to again remind you that there may be some things that are a little bit different from what you have heard today or what you will hear today and what you may have heard in the past. I'm just trying to tell you about the traditional reformed orthodox and actually mainstream thinking on Revelation, even though dispensationalism is more popular and has been for the last 100 years, for the previous 1900, uh, it, there was a different opinion about the way that Revelation shakes out. Um, but we are talking again today, not just, uh, last week we talked about the preliminary return of Christ, the marriage supper of the Lamb, the rapture, those sorts of things. Today we're talking about the glorious appearing of Christ. And we're talking about his return to earth. And again, if you believe that Jesus Christ is your Savior and Lord, then everything that you hear today is going to be good news. All right, so let me, let me just, again, having set that up, let me give you a summary of what we're going to be talking about today. What we're going to be talking about today is this, that when Christ returns, he will be revealed to the whole world for who he is. And the counterfeit trinity, that is to say the devil, the beast from the sea, and the false prophet or the beast from the earth, the, uh, the counterfeit trinity will finally be once and for all defeated, overturned, undone, kaput, however you want to say it. So again, when Christ returns, he will be revealed for who he is. The counterfeit trinity will be finally defeated. At that time also, this is part of the summary still, the dead will rise and the judgment and eternity of all human beings will be revealed. And so we've got today in our, in our discussion, we've got the return of Christ and the judgment are kind of the, the big two main data points. The, the fact that Christ will return and that in the end the dead will rise and the judgment and eternal destiny of all human beings, hear me when I say all human beings, will be revealed. It's important because, again, this is one of those places where we diverge from dispensational theology a bit. Um, so let's start in chapter 19, beginning in verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. 
His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, that's many crowns. And he has a name written upon, uh, written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe, dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, linen, white and pure, were following him on on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. This is the Bible's depiction, John's verbal description of what he saw when Jesus Christ returns to earth. Now, I want you to see something that is very important. This is not the first time we've experienced or that we've seen a white rider, or rather a rider on a white horse, in the book of Revelation, is it? When was the last time that that happened? It was at the beginning of chapter 6 of Revelation, at the beginning of the tribulations, with the first seal, the first of the seven seals, the first four seals that were opened by the, uh, on the scroll by the Lamb were what? The four horsemen, the release of the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And the first of the four horsemen was the rider on the white horse. Now, there are a lot of people who want to say that that rider and this rider are the same person, and that, in fact, Christ hasn't just come a second time, but a third time. But that is a total misunderstanding of who that first rider is, because remember, what does chapter 6 say about that right rider? In verse 6, uh, verse six beginning in verse one, chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. That sounds really good. I mean, there's nothing necessarily negative there until you read about the next three horses and you figure out what comes in the wake of, of this rider on the white horse. We know that this rider on the white horse represents the the spirit of, even before it's named, the spirit of antichrist, the spirit of substitute Christ, the spirit of idolatry, the spirit of pride, the spirit of political demagoguery. It is that power and that force to which men and which men and women, to which people give their allegiance thinking, I can trust that instead of Christ. Because again, we, we read, when we read about the real rider on the white horse, it seems all very similar, except in the details. Because you see that, you know, in, you know first of all, this, the first white rider, the counterfeit white rider, you know, has a bow. He's coming to conquer and to, con- uh, to uh, conquering and to conquer. He's coming to, you know, to basically say, don't look to the real God. Don't look to the, to the eternal one. Don't look to the lamb. Look at me. I will solve all your problems. I'll make your dreams come true. I'll do all of those things that you want. I mean, this is a guy who's running for office. 
This is the guy who's saying, I will, I will do everything you need. Don't, don't, don't worry about God. Don't trust that other guy. Look at me. And what follows in his wake when we start following human leadership to that level? When we begin to not only follow human leaders, but begin to worship them, as in the case of Nazi Germany, or as in the case of the Roman emperors, or as in the case of, say, for example, the Soviet or, or Chinese communist leadership like Mao. When those become divine figures, what follows in their wake? Well, we see the other three horsemen of the apocalypse, famine, plague, economic collapse, uh, you know, all resulting in death. When we put our faith in earthly leaders, those things follow. The first four horsemen of the apocalypse are an indictment of the brokenness of human civilization. When we invest all of our hopes and dreams in a king and a president and a potentate, whatever it is, then what follows is that destruction of those next four, of those next three horses. Because how does that first king, how does that first figure establish his power? Through war, through conquest, through subjugation, through power, which is totally counter to Jesus Christ and how he established God's kingdom, which was through sacrifice and humility. And so we see a contrast here between that white rider and this one. Because look, I mean, look and compare at the description of who Jesus Christ reveals himself to be. It says he is called faithful and true. I don't know what your Bible says, but in my Bible, and the implication here in the, um, uh, here in the uh, Scripture is that these are not adjectives. He's not described as faithful and true. His name is... He is called faithful and true. Those are proper nouns, not adjectives. I mean, they are in their verb form, or in their, in their uh, grammatical form, they appear to be adjectives, but they are proper nouns. Those are his names. As opposed to conquering and to conquer, his names are faithful and true. And then we also see that in, uh, in verse 15, in righteousness... He judges and makes war. You know, here we have the connection of Jesus Christ not only as the warrior, but also as the judge. Now, in many ways, that sort of strikes against our sensibilities because we, we live in a world where we believe it's necessary for, say, for example, the authority and the power of judge, jury, and executioner to be separate, right? Why do we keep... But, you know, why do we not allow one person in our system of government to be judge, jury, and executioner? Why do we, why, what is that? Balance, balance of power. And why do we feel like the balance of power is necessary? Why do we think that checks and balances are necessary? Because we don't believe that people are good. We believe people are broken. We believe people are selfish. We believe people seek their own power. And so we don't want to put all power in one person. But if this one person is faithful and true, then he does have the righteousness, he has the love, he has the holiness to actually be the judge and jury. That he has the, that he has the authority and he has the morality to be both the warrior and the judge. And so in this case, we are seeing that God has declared that Jesus Christ 
has the authority and he has the holiness to have all of that power wrapped up in one person. This is a, this is a declaration of the sovereignty and the supremacy of Jesus Christ's authority. What does it also say about him? It says that he is, it says that he is the commander of this great army. Now, we're not used to seeing Jesus portrayed as the commander of a great army. We think of him as we think about him in the movies, as this leader of a ragtag little band of disciples, you know, this plucky group who eventually spread the gospel throughout the Mediterranean world after, after the resurrection. But there's a very interesting scene in the gospels when Jesus is being tried by Pontius Pilate, and Pilate says, you know what, if you're a king... Why don't, you, why don't you have your armies come rescue you? And what's fascinating is that Jesus doesn't deny that. He says what? He says, my kingdom is not of this world. But the implication is that, oh, well, yeah, I have a king. I mean, I am a king, and I have a kingdom. It's not of this world. But, there's, but Scripture tells us, like, if he had wanted to summon angel armies, he had them at his disposal and he was, basically, he was basically able to say, you know what, I can come and I could wreck this place if I wanted to, but that's not my job. That's not what my Father has called me to do. So in the Gospels, that's really the only place where we get a hint of Jesus Christ as the commander of the armies of the Lord. But that's not the only place in Scripture. If we go back to the book of Joshua, we have a very interesting scene outside of the walls of Jericho the night before the battle of, the, of Jericho in which Joshua meets a very interesting figure in the desert. If you look at Joshua chapter 5, when Joshua was by Jericho, I'm in verse 13, when Joshua, Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and he looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or are you for our adversaries? And he said, No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord, and now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Now, there are plenty of people who over the years have, who have assumed that this is an angel, that this is Michael or someone like that. But there is also a very strong, and I would say a very broad, body of scholarship and, and tradition that understands that this commander of the army of the Lord who meets Joshua outside the walls of Jericho is not an angel, is not some superhuman figure, but rather is a pre-incarnation vision of Christ himself. Because if we look to Revelation, who is the commander of the armies of the Lord? I mean, yes, Michael is up there. He's an archangel, but he is not the commander-in-chief. It is rather Jesus Christ who wears the crowns, who is in charge. And if we take, if we take a closer look at this incident with Joshua, we see some interesting things. First of all, um, he is there, and he's described as the commander of the Lord of hosts, Lord Sabaoth, 
you know, is the, is the, you know, I don't know how many of you all grew up singing uh, holy, 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 and thinking that the printers of your hymnal didn't know how to spell Sabbath. I always thought, you know, no, 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 it's the Lord Sabbath is, no, 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 it's Lord Sabaoth, which means Lord of hosts, not Lord of the Sabbath. Not that he isn't Lord of the Sabbath, but, but you know, this is one of the titles of God, that he is the Lord of hosts. And what we see here is that when Joshua sees the commander of the armies of the Lord, he, what does he do? He falls down and he worships him. And what does the commander of the army of the Lord say to him about Joshua worshiping him? Nothing. He lets it happen. Now, if you just look in the previous verses in chapter 19, when John gets so overwhelmed and he gets so awe-inspired by one of the angels that he, just, that he falls down and worships, it's like it repels the angel. He says, no, 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 no. I'm not the one you worship. I am, not the, I am not the one who is coming. Let's get this straight. Don't worship me. It's like John the Baptist said, no, no, no. I am not the bridegroom. I am the friend of the bridegroom. He must increase and I must decrease. The commander of the armies of the Lord lets it happen. Why? Because we believe that he is the Son of God, that he is the second person of the Trinity, that he is the eternal word of God. And again, if that's not enough evidence for you, look at the parallels. In many ways, this is, this is Joshua's come-to-the-mountain moment like Moses. Because remember, when Moses was really put in charge of the, his, uh, uh, of the Exodus on Mount Sinai before he went back to Egypt and, and, and had, the, you know, had the discussions with Pharaoh and all that kind of stuff, God met him personally in the burning bush and said what take off the shoes from your feet for you are on holy ground this is what we call in biblical studies a christophany that is an appear i mean and, and the difference what the reason we don't call this a theophany or a god sighting is because here we do have an image of a son of man like daniel and so what we believe that Joshua was seeing was this pre-incarnate vision of Christ, like we see it in Daniel, like we see it in Revelation. And here he is, the commander of the armies of the Lord. Now let's keep going. Um, he has eyes of fire, eyes that see through everything, eyes that create their own light. I mean, you know, if, if it gets dark, what do we have to do? We have to pull out a flashlight or pull out your phone or something like that. What if you had built-in flashlights that could see everything? That's kind of the, the, what the eyes of fire mean. Um, he's the true king. He wears many crowns. You know, his accomplishments, he's got more medals. He's got more crowns. He rules over more peoples and nations. He rules over all nations. The way I kind of envision it is that he's got, these, he's got a crown for every nation on his head what's fascinating too here is that it has a name written on the crown that no one knows except himself you know and again you know is this a reference to the fact that that we don't really historically know how to pronounce the most holy name of god we say yahweh or we say jehovah but those are those are historical guesses because hebrew doesn't come natively 
with vowels. It's just consonants. It's Y-H-W-H, or in Latin, J-H-V-H. We don't really know what the vowel sounds are, and, that, and the reason we don't know that is because those were not written because the, uh, because the Hebrews knew that they had to protect the holy name of God. Is it that, or is there you know, more to the name? We don't know. It's, I mean, it says it right here. There's a name that no one knows except himself. So we're going to have to accept that. But there are other names written on him, so we know who he is. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. But there's also one other name that he's given, that he is, and his name is, what does it say? He is the Word of God. And you've got to love that as John, because John opens his gospel with what words? In the beginning was the Word, the Logos, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then jumping down to verse 14, uh, John 1, 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Here John is again having confirmed that the Word of God is his name. So, I mean, this, these are not clues. These are bold-faced statements. Who is this? This is Jesus, but this is Jesus fully revealed as the Son of God. This is the Jesus of the resurrection. This is the Jesus of the transfiguration. This is the Jesus of Daniel's visions. This is the Jesus of, Mar of Jericho and Joshua's vision. This is Jesus Christ as he is, yes, the Son of Man, but the fully realized Son of God, coming to do what he has come to do. We see this also in another clue, verse 13. He was clothed in a robe dipped in blood. You know, here he is. You know, he's not like that. You know, it's interesting. The white rider on the white horse earlier, he's all clean. He's all pure. He's, you know, not, no muss on him. But here the legitimate Christ is legitimate. Part of his legitimacy is the fact that he spilled his own blood and sacrifice for our sins. His robe is covered in it. This is the one of whom John wrote in his gospel. And I want you to, uh, for, so, so, you know, I love this picture, but I also love this. Uh, how many of you all have been to, the, uh, to Kerrville or been by Kerrville and seen the beautiful cross up on the hill on the side? This is actually a picture that Roddy and, and Pam Clack sent me this week. They, they went to that park, and I didn't know about this, but but I always thought it was just the, that there was just the cross up there. But apparently it's an entire sort of Christian memorial park. And one of the statues up at the top of the hill is of the rider on the white horse. And uh, there's another pack, uh, picture that's funny. It shows, shows Roddy right here looking up at it, taking another picture. Um, but I just thought, I wanted to share that with you because I thought it was such a beautiful juxtaposition because you have in Pam's picture there, you have the conquering Jesus Christ who has authority to make war, who is faithful and true, set against the cross where we are reminded of his, of his humility and his sacrifice and his love. We cannot release the tension between those two reminders of Christ that he is the conqueror that he is the one who has the legitimacy to make war, and that he is the one who gave himself 
for our sins. He who had no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. But I want to go back to this picture for a second. I want to go back to, um, I want you to look closely if you can, I don't know if you can see them, but you see this army that's described as following Jesus. You know, and these are the, you know, these are the saints, these are the armies of heaven. And what do you notice about them? What are they wearing? I mean, honestly, in this picture, they look like they're dressed for a toga party, not a battle. They look more like philosophers or, or, you know, or, you know, vacationers. Why? Because the only army armor that this army needs is the spiritual armor of God. They don't need weapons. The only one depicted as carrying a weapon is Christ himself. And what is his weapon? His weapon is his voice, as it's described as the sword. I don't know that it's depicted in that picture, but it is, the, it is the word of God, which Paul talks about as the sword of the Spirit. And so the reason that Jesus comes is to defeat the armies of the enemy. Verse 17, then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead. Come, gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And, and the beast was captured and with it, the false prophet who, is, who in its presence has done, had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Now, so often, this... This moment in Revelation is described as the final battle between God and Satan. And I'm guilty of that too. What's missing in that description? The battle. I want you to hear what is happening. Remember, the angel shows up and before the battle even starts, he says, come, gather, he calls to the birds of the air, the, the implication is the carrion birds, the vultures. He says, come and gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, of captains, of all that. In other words, the angel, before the battle even begins, starts calling the carrion birds of the universe of the world and says, it's supper time. This is the angel declaring that the battle is over before it has even begun. He's calling his shot. He's Babe Ruth saying, it's going over there. It's done. There's not going to be a battle here. I mean, here is, here is Satan. Here is the beast. Here is the false prophet. All their minions all saddled up, all dressed up, and no place to go. Because there is no battle. There is no great scene of two armies clashing and fighting like you see in so many movies. Because what happens? Jesus Christ uses the only weapon 
necessary to assure this victory. It says in verse 21, the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. God spoke and the universe was created. The Son of God speaks, declares victory, and victory is assured. There is no battle. The enemy is unmade. Just as he spoke them into being, he undoes them out of being. So powerful is the word of our God. So total is his sovereignty. I'll go back a couple of lines up. It says that, um, and the beast was captured. So, you know, it's interesting. Before the rest of the army, before all the minions of Satan are, are, are slain, the beast and the false prophet are captured. And they're thrown into it says, these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain. Of the whole army, those two are allowed to survive for some reason. They're captured and they're thrown alive into the lake of fire. But the rest of the beast's army was killed by the hearing of the word of God. So, I mean, again, there is no, there's really no battle here. It's a foregone victory when Christ returns. Now, the next thing that happens is something that, that I will say has confounded biblical scholars, Revelation scholars, for generations. Last week, we talked, or two weeks ago, we talked about the rapture and the different views on the rapture. You know, post-tribulation, pre-tribulation, who's involved, when's it happen, all that kind of stuff. Does it happen at the beginning or does it happen at the end? Or when, when exactly does it happen? Ironically, the word rapture doesn't appear in the, in the book of Revelation. Not, neither is it described in the book of Revelation. We know because of other parts of Scripture that it is a real thing, but Reformed theology places the rapture not before the tribulations, but after the tribulations, where we go through, we, you know, we become the martyrs, we become the veterans that then march back in with Christ. That's, you know, we talked about all that last week, I would, or two weeks ago, I would uh, ask people to, to reference the video if you want to go back and see more about that, because today we've got another hotly debated, highly contested uh, passage in Revelation that has had a variety of interpretations. Look at verse 20. And I will say, this is probably, for me, the most confounding part of Revelation. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven. This is after the armies of Satan have been defeated. I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, and shut it and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer, until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. 
Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years, and the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign for him, reign with him for a thousand years. I mean, I think I mentioned thousand years like three or four times, and I could go back and count. This is a part, this is the portion of Revelation that talks about uh, chapter 20 is the part that talks about what we call the millennium. The millennium is this thousand-year span of time in which Satan is bound on earth, or Satan is bound from earth is probably a better way to say that, and the people of God are allowed free reign without the devil's interference to fulfill the rule and kingdom of God on earth. Now, when is that? What is that? What does that mean? First of all, here's my question. And, and this is my human limitation. You know, God has defeated, Christ has defeated Satan. He, and why not throw him in the lake of fire now too? Why, why throw him in this, you know, in this um, you know, self-isolation or this isolation, what do they call it? Um, anyway, with a solitary confinement cell in hell and not just finish it now. You know, I'm one of the guys who, you know, when I'm watching a horror movie, if at some point the good guy, you know, if the bad guy drops the weapon or, you know, the, 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 the psycho killer in the horror movie drops the machete or the knife or whatever, I'm the guy yelling at the screen, pick it up and kill him. <laughs> don't, don't run. Don't, if, you're in the, if you find yourself in a car and there's a crazy psycho in front of you, hit him with the car finish it. I mean, just like, you know, what, what is wrong with you people? Why are you running to the old abandoned well? I mean, it doesn't make any sense. But, you know, for some reason, God is allowing Satan to live, allowing him, you know, to, to be bound while the church does Christ's work on earth for a thousand years. I, I will, that is one of the questions that I really want to get answered. I mean, I'm just like, I don't, Lord, I don't get this. What is going on? And when is this thousand years? And what, is it, what does this mean? The good thing is I'm in good, I'm in good company asking those questions because there are at least four schools of thought on that question. And one of the handouts that you have in your uh, seat today is a handout called the Millennium. And rather than go through all four of these schools of thought, I'm just going to present them to you because, you know, I, I mean, I have my leanings, but, you know, they're even hard for me to distinguish and describe. The, the sort of the main four schools, or really the main four, uh, three schools are amillennialism, pre, uh, dispensational premillennialism, and, uh, and then postmillennialism, you know, about the return of Christ and stuff like this, um, amill, post-mill, pre-mill. Um, then you've got pre-trib, pre-mill, which is, which is dispensational premillennialism. And I've got summaries of these various, um, various schools of thought here. You know, whether that thousand years is literal, whether it's figurative, whether it is, a, you know, whether it means a literal thousand years 
or whether it is a figurative thousand years. What exactly does that mean? There is plenty for you to chew on, and I, if I try to explain it, I'm going to goof it up. But I do want to show you this back page, okay? This back page where I've got three, where I've got four big boxes. When I don't understand something theologically, I start asking people. And I start asking, you know, and I want to see who believes what to kind of, you know, to kind of say, you know, what does this mean? Which is the right interpretation? And um, what you have here are advocates of different millennial views. And I want you to look at some of the names in these boxes. Those representing the dispensational premillennialist school, that's your Tim LaHaye of Left Behind. That's your Hal Lindsey. That's, you know, J David Jeremiah, J.N. Darby, um, you know, Charles Caldwell Ryrie. I mean, if you've got the Ryrie Study Bible, it's written from this perspective. So, you know, that's, that's kind of the majority opinion right now, or at least in the last 150 years in North America. You know, kind of that dispensationalist school. But, and people think, well, that is obviously what revelation really means, and that's really what the millennium is all about. But I want you to look at some of these other schools. Look at some of the names under these. Under, under amillennialists, who don't even believe that there will be a literal millennium, but it's, that it's a spiritual symbolic thing, you got people like Louis Burkhoff and, and Abraham Kuyper, Bruce Waltke. These are big names. Under historic premillennialists, you've got uh, W.J. Erdman, Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, Tertullian. I mean, the, I mean, the early church is well represented. I'm talking about the 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 uh, the, the uh, not patriarchs, the uh, the patristics of, of the church are in that group. Now look at postmillennialists. I mean, I mean, you got some big names here. You know, Athanasius. Augustine, Calvin, Robert Louis Dabney, John Edwards, A.A. A. Hodge, Charles, I mean, you got the whole faculty of Princeton Seminary here. Charles, I mean, B.B. Um, Warfield, John Henley Thornwell, R.C. Sproul, John Owen. I mean, you, I mean from, you, you've got, I mean, those are big names. I mean, I think Luther would probably fit in that group. Um, but, but what you, but, you know, so, so the thing is, however you interpret it in one of these four schools, you're going to be in good company. And if you've got people who are this devoted and this smart, who see, who, who see multiple ways of interpreting this, don't get locked into one person saying, oh, well, no, it is, this is clearly what it means. You know, I would, you know, I would look at it and say, well, gosh, Calvin believes this, but you know, uh, David Jeremiah is no dummy. You know, I mean, it's, you know, there, there are certain, there, I think we need to address some of these controversies with humility. So that being said, I'm punting. Here's, here's your millennial worksheet. If you were thinking today that I was going to untie or cut the Gordian knot for you, I'm sorry. But here's, here's, my, here's my humble offering. Take it, read it, and we can discuss it later because I want to get on to something, that ha to the things that happened during the millennium as described. The two main things that happened during the millennium are first of all that the dead all the dead will be raised and then the judgment all the dead will be raised and then the judgment 
And this is why I made that big setup at the beginning that if you believe that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, that this is good news. Because if, because if he's not, it's really bad news. It's scary. But as we look at the judgment, I want to, I as we look at the millennium, we need to, first of all, notice that nobody who has ever died will not be resurrected. As a matter of fact, Revelation describes two resurrections. The first resurrection is the resurrection of the saints, those who will join Christ, those who have died in faithfulness, those who have died for his sake, who, who are gathered with him in the air and who will join him in the battle, or in, in his glorious appearing, I should say, not really in the battle. But then there's a second resurrection, the general resurrection, which is everybody else, everybody else who has ever died, which is everybody who, I mean, everybody up to that point who has died, there may still be some people who, who are still alive. Everybody will be raised at that point for the purpose of the judgment. And let me tell you, the, I believe that the judgment is this, that it is at the judgment that the, uh, that the destiny and the eternity of every person will be revealed. Let's, look, let's take a look at what, it, what, uh, what happens in the judgment according to Scripture. Oh, I'm sorry, I, I did skip the fact that Satan is released and then he's finally thrown in the lake of fire as well. Um, I want to get on to the judgment because we're running out of time. But, but Satan is finally defeated there. I'm sorry, that was a very cursory way of saying that. But, um, but the, second gen, the second resurrection and the, and the great judgment are what we, what we think of when we think of the judgment. And, and D. James Kennedy had a great way of describing the way these things work together. He said that if you're having trouble understanding the timelines, you know, second death, first death, first resurrection, second resurrection, the way he said, put it was this, that if you are born once, you die twice. If you're born once, you die twice. If you're born twice, you die once. Okay, that's really, I mean, I could really hang it up there. But let me explain the resurrection. The first resurrection, the dead in Christ are raised. And the second resurrection, everybody else is raised for the sake of the judgment. And at the judgment, the victorious Christ, now having defeated the entire counterfeit trinity, will come to judge the living and the dead throughout history. Verse 11, 2011. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. And from his presence, earth and sky fled away. And no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And, uh, and the books were opened. Excuse me, and books were opened. And then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it, death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire, and this is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, 
he was thrown into the lake of fire. Let's talk about the lake of fire for just a second. You may remember back in September when I was talking about the symbolic interpretation of language in Revelation that uh, I I, I default to R.C. Sproul's description of symbolism, that a symbol is a sign that points to something else. It's a a figurative sign, signpost that points to a reality. And so the, the words lake of fire are a word picture that point to something real. But the words lake of fire are only a description. They're only a symbol. So for example, if you said to your kids, we're going to Disney World, and then you dropped them off at the base of a billboard that said, had a picture of Disney World, would they be happy? Of course not. Because the reality is so much more real and intense than the sign pointing to the thing. The thing is more real. The thing is more intense. And what Sproul says is that when we, read, when we read words like lake of fire in Revelation, does that mean that you, know, you go out to Canyon Lake and it's like an oil slick covered and burning? No, not necessarily. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. But the point of describing like that is that what John saw, he described as a lake of fire. And those words do not do, an, do enough justice to the intensity of that thought. I mean, because if John's saying it's a lake of fire, then whatever it is, I mean, the words lake of fire don't hurt any of you. But a real lake of fire would be horrible. And Sproul's point is that when symbolic language is used, either about the horror of the lake of fire or about the beauty of the new Jerusalem, that those words don't even begin to do justice to the thing they're describing. And that the thing that it's describing is either on the case of the lake of fire, more horrible than the words of, than the limitations of the words lake of fire could, could capture, or more beautiful than the limitations describing, the, the words, the, the limitations of the words describing the new Jerusalem could possibly be. So the, the easy way to say this is that whatever hell is, Whatever eternal death is, whatever it is that happens to them, it is, John says, the only way I know how to describe it is it's a lake of fire. And I don't think any of us want to be swimming in that lake. It's going to be worse than described. On the other hand, heaven's going to be better. The new Jerusalem is going to be better than described, better than we can possibly imagine. But that is the destination. And the judgment is what takes place at this point. Now, what's fascinating is we've already seen the terms of the judgment. Those who wore the mark of the lamb, those who wore the mark of the beast, those who followed the lamb and trusted him for their salvation, those who followed the beast or something else for their salvation. And what happens at the judgment is not that any new evidence is introduced, but rather what, is, what happens in the judgment is that everything is revealed. And what's fascinating is you have, you, the way it's described is you have the great white throne and everybody gathered, I mean, it says all people, living, dead, hell, sea, ground, people, yeah, everybody is there. And this is one of the thing, places where we differ with the dispensationalists. The dispensationalists feel that, they, that we have sidestepped this. 
that we've gone around this because they because they say well wait a minute but our sins are forgiven they're washed away white as snow they're is you know, they're forgotten they're pushed far away from us as east is from west god doesn't remember our sins i mean come on that's a logical fallacy an omnipotent god cannot not know who we are or what we've done or what we deserve that's another it's kind of like the, the desire to dodge the tribulations but it's a misunderstanding of the judgment because remember what I said, if you believe that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, this is all good news. How can this possibly be good news? Because it says right here that these books are gonna be opened up and everything you and I ever, have ever done is gonna be written down and we're gonna see it. And who knows who else is gonna see it? But we're gonna be standing there with God with our rap sheet right in front of us. I mean, come on. Aren't there things in your life you wish you could forget? Things you've done, things that have been done to you, moments of selfishness, moments of brokenness, moments of fear, whatever, moments of shame. But it's all going to be written right there. It says right there that, there, that, that books were opened. Theologians call these the books of works. All the things that we've ever done, all of our records are written in those books. But those aren't the only books. There's also another book. And that book is called the Lamb's Book of Life. And the way this works is that if your name's written in the book of works, which it will be, all of ours are names are in the book of works, books of works. There's so many of them. And I, and I was thinking it's interesting, books versus book. Um, if your name is written in the book of works, but not in the book of life, then you're going to be judged according to what's written on your rap sheet. But if, you are, if your name is written in the Lamb's book of life, then you're judged by what's, what's written in that book. And so what happens is that these books are opened. And the judge looks and says, yeah, Bob Fuller, seriously? Wow, all that? You thought you were pretty good, didn't you? Well, let's see. Oh, but wait. There's one, there's one sentence in this book over here that undoes it all. You know, none of my works, good or bad, are enough to overturn this one sentence, which is Robert Fuller, child of the covenant, forgiven and washed by the blood of Jesus Christ and the mercy of God. Come, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter now into the joy of your master. Because what happens at the judgment is that we will either be judged for our works or we'll be judged by the work of the Lamb. And the way I look at it, the way I, you know, it's like the, the books of works, these are records of all the things that we've done. But the Lamb's book of life, which chapter 13 and chapter 17, was not just written during our lives. Nobody was waiting to take, our, take down notes. This is not a record of our lives. The Lamb's Book of Life was written before the foundation of the world, 
And it's not a book of records. It's a book of stories that God has written about you. It's about how you are a character in his big story, that he is the author of your life. I mean, here's all the stuff that we've done over here in this pile of records and then over here is the story that God's written about us, not just for the life we live here, but the life that we will live for him in eternity. Because right now, all the stuff that we have done in our lives up to this point and beyond, the stuff we haven't even done yet, in the Lamb's Book of Life, that's going to be maybe on page XI of the preface. And the rest of your life story starts in chapter 1, which we haven't even begun yet. Because when we've been here 10,000 years bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. And so the judgment is not just a shaming. It's not just a public you know, act of cruelty. It is God revealing his eternity for his people. Now, to be sure, if your name's not written in the Lamb's Book of Life from the foundation of the world, according to Revelation, then the lake of fire is your destiny, and the judgment reveals that destiny. What's fascinating, though, is that even after all this, after everything we've read, Satan can still muster an army to hate God. I think that the reason, you know, now that I think about it, I think the reason that God gives Satan a second chance, a third chance, a tenth chance, a millionth chance, is to show the, the, you know, the, the greatness of his mercy. Finally, he says, enough's enough. And, but there's still people rebelling against God right along with him. And I, personally, I think that the Lamb's book of life is probably bigger than all the books of works. The difference is, in the Lamb's Book of Life, it only takes one sentence to say, redeemed by Jesus Christ, as opposed to all the stuff I've done, which would cover many pages. But the point is, you've got these two, you've got the record versus the story, written before the foundation of the world. I mean, do, do you get that part? That God has a plan and a purpose for your life now that is going to be revealed at the judgment. It's, and it's, you know what? It's not up for negotiation in our lives right now. He is in control. This is where the real Calvinist in me comes out. If you want to show me that we determine the destiny of our lives, I'm happy to have that conversation with you, but, but Revelation, Ephesians, the New Testament, the Old Testament shows us that God has a plan and a purpose for our lives. You know, it, for it is by grace that you've been saved through faith so that you could do the works that God prepared beforehand for you to do. He's written this story. And that story is revealed at the judgment. And so the judgment becomes for us not a moment of condemnation, but even for the saints, the judgment becomes a moment of thanksgiving. Because when we see all of those sins and all of that brokenness and all of our failures and all of our missed shots and trying to, trying to you know, do good, and we see how 
badly condemned we would be. And then we see that we are saved. That will become a celebration. It's, it, you know, I, I, last night in, in our, our session, I threatened to, to, show, to show the crowd a really nice scar that I have right here. And none of y'all want to see that. And I don't want to show it to you. <laughs> it's kind of ugly, actually. I have a scar there from when I blew out my knee playing football in high school. Um, and it is, you know, cosmetically, it's a pretty ugly thing. But every time I look at that scar, I don't think about the pain or the brokenness it represents. It reminds me of the healing and the things that God has done in my life since then. You know, I was, I, please don't misunderstand this. When I, when I blew out my knee, I was, I was playing football, and that ended my football career, such as it would, it was. The other thing that would have ended my football career would probably have been graduation. So it's not like, I've, not like I got knocked off into some other reality. But I was told at the time, 1986, that, you know, that I would probably, you know, I would never be able to do anything athletic again. I would always have to wear this massive brace that I could never ski, I could never, you know, I, I would have trouble running. I mean, it was, I mean, it was, it was, it was one of those, I mean, they, they tried to look at it, do it arthroscopically, got in there and said, nope, had to open the whole thing up. And it was that bad. And I was told all these horrible things. Well, since that, you know, since that time, I've learned to water ski. I've, you know, I've continued to, you know, I've continued to play sports of different types, at, you know, in amateur levels, all that kind of stuff. I've done a lot of stuff. And now when I look at that scar, I think that was not a death sentence. That was a motivation. There was grace involved there. And I think about the healing rather than the injury. And the judgment will take all of our sins, all of our brokenness, and it'll show it to us. And then it'll show us the healing of Jesus Christ. And our reaction will not be horror. It will be hallelujah. Thank you that you closed this book and opened this book on my life. That's why I say that if you believe that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, the judgment will not be a terror for his saints. It'll be a celebration. And next week, we'll talk about the reward that comes upon that celebration. Let's pray. Oh Lord, when we read about your judgment, we are, we're scared because we know enough of our record to know that there's, there's stuff of which we are not proud. But Lord, when we read about the Lamb's Book of Life written before the foundation of the world and we hear that you have, that you have written our stories before we ever had a chance to mess them up, Lord, we give you praise and thanks. We thank you for your victory, not only on the earth, but we thank you for your victory over our sin and our lives. We cherish that and we celebrate it. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you very much. Next week will be our final week uh, of the class. I don't, I'm not, in, this, in Revelation, you have to be careful when you use words like final. Um, so, but next week will be our final week together, and I'm looking forward to it. Thank you so much, and we'll see you later. Thank you.